I'm going to do a quick review. We are in verse Acts 16, 19-21, and we see here that when the Spirit went out, ex the hope for profit went out, ex The historical details here are accurate. The agora, the marketplace, the authorities, the magistrates, all of these terms are accurate to the type of government the Roman Empire would have in place in uh, Philippi, which was a Roman colony, where they had great pride about their Roman status and their citizenship. Notice that they here they uh, said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, or proclaiming customs, which is not lawful for us to accept or observe, observe being Romans. So notice they try to create uh, prejudice against the Paul and Silas for being Jews. Rather than bringing out, oh, they cast out the python spirit out of the slave girl, which probably wouldn't, they wouldn't care about that. They try to find something they can get the magistrates to care about. So they find some other way to go after them. People do that to this day. If they want to get you and they can't get you on this, they'll find something else to get you on that they're going to care about. So that's, that's what we're seeing here. So I'm reading here from Dr. Schnabel that they went in front of these chief magistrates. And these were people who, um, these lictors, they would carry bundles of sticks. And the bundles of sticks are fascia, and it's where we get our term fascism. The bundle of rods, everybody stays together, and the rods can be used to beat you. The lictors would take the rods and beat them, which is what's going to happen here. So this is all true to form. Now, we were going to look at this issue of profit. So the hope for profit goes out with the spirit going out. Now we're going to look at Acts 19, 24, and 25. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. Acts 19, 24, and 25. So Luke likes to foreshadow things. So he talks about this hope for profit connected with the spirit of Python. Later in Acts, the profit issue comes up again. And this is, in this case, is connected to the idolatry that's going on with the silversmiths that were making statues for Artemis, and that would be in Ephesus. Artemis was the goddess that was worshipped, amongst others, in Ephesus. So there's a little preview. The truth is that Paul and Silas did not have a social issue. They weren't trying to create a Jewish culture versus a Roman culture. They were preaching Christ. That was what's at issue, and that's what's always going to be the issue. Paul will preach Christ, whether it's to Jews, whether it's in the synagogue, or in this case, in Philippi, there were some women gathered for prayer by a river, side of town. Lydia was, becomes a key person, and then they end up dealing with this python spirit. So no social agenda, but the preaching of Christ. Now I'm going to show you 
some archaeological material here. Here is a current photograph of a sort of marketplace, actually the marketplace, that they were dragged in. They dragged him into the marketplace before the rulers. Now I'm going to read the caption I have here in my notes that came with these slides that I bought. The west end of the forum consisted of three buildings. The northernmost was a temple, okay, blue, that served as Bulaterion, Latin Curia, where the Council of Citizens assembled. The opposite end of was the records office <coughs> or archive, where the city's official records and official weights and measures were kept. And between these was a Roman basilica where the law court probably convened. A statue of Fortuna, the goddess of luck, still stands in the situ, situ at the north end of the basilica. So I'm gonna, I got another slide on this. So this is all a real place. It's how they did business. One of the things you may want to think about that is part of what's called Pax Romana. The Romans had a very sophisticated and efficient system. They had language, they had transportation, they had laws, they had ways of running their 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 uh, empire. People had certain legal rights, and they, it was very efficient. In God's providence, that this Pax Romana is called was in place when Christ came into this world and died for sins, was raised from the dead, and ascended to heaven. Okay, Luke Acts made it possible for the gospel to rapidly spread. And not only rapidly spread, but be preserved through the writings of the apostles like Luke, as it has been, because of the system they had in place. The transportation, that they had enough Roman authority that it was actually safe to travel from one city to another. Transportation by ship. Yes, Rich. Is that not amazing? Is that on? The, the light's on. Okay, try it again. Hello? Hello? Okay. Yeah, it just, I just wanted to add, Bob, isn't that amazing how evil the Roman system was and how they beat Christians up and everything, but how a sovereign God is that he used the Roman Empire to push the gospel around the world through the transportation systems and through the organization that the Roman Empire is. And I guess I just want to say, if, if, if that's the case back then, just think of it today in our system, how God is in control with, right. with everything going on in our election system and everything like that. God will bring about whatever he has, even though it doesn't seem like it right now. It's like God, he's got this all covered. The point of it isn't for us to be happy and comfortable. It's for the gospel to spread around the world. Because it wasn't too comfortable for Paul and Silas. They got beat, thrown into a dungeon. But the gospel still spread. Now, I see this providentially what's going on today. We can spread the gospel all around the world without leaving our homes. Right. And 
I literally have direct interaction with disciples who came to Christ through the the writing and radio ministry that I have of Critical Issues Commentary, part of Gospel of Grace. And I'm interacting and discipling people in other countries that I never saw or will ever visit. And they're growing. And they're learning. And they're asking very astute questions. And God is using that. So God will continue to use it. Why are we in the church age? I've gone over this, but let me do it again. Why is it like this? Why are we in the church age? During the time between Pentecost and the rapture, citizens are being added to the kingdom of God. And those people will be part of the eternal work of God through all the different things that are yet to happen, including the millennium. Be part of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Part of reigning with Christ during the millennium. Part of the eternal order of affairs, the new Jerusalem, everything. The whole point of the church age is to add citizens and disciple those persons. And that's what's going on. Now, God has been doing that throughout those 2,000 plus years including in some really bad, dark places. So we need to be reminded of that and push for the freedom of the gospel. But this is a real place. Here it is. So here they have a color scheme. So the basilica is in yellow here and the bulletarion is in uh, at the front in blue, and then at the back is the court, is the office, the records office is in red. But this is where Paul was. It's where they brought him for the magistrates. So this is all literal history. Here, let me read the caption. They dragged him into the marketplace. The word, uh, the word bulaterion comes from the Greek word for council of citizens. Bule, uh, the Latin equivalents are curia, another name by which the building in Philippi some kind of call. So there's a council of citizens. And so they had a chance to be dragged to the forum. Wasn't good. They were beaten. Wasn't pretty. Wasn't nice. Wasn't comfortable. And it was certainly seemed rather brutish uh, to us, but it was better than anarchy. All right? And God's going to use it. We're going to see that. God's going to use it. God's going to use us. Right here and right now, he's going to use us because he promised that he would. So there is another view of that. And then let's go, let's see, make sure I got this right. It's in 21, 22. Here we go. Okay, so they're coming under attack based on these accusations. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. That's the fascia. That's this bundle of sticks. They had those in case they needed to take them out and beat on people. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. 
ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Literally wood, but it is stocks. Started down in the dungeon, cold stone dungeon, feet in stocks, having been beaten, bloody and in horrible condition, unable to move. Pretty bad. Down into a horrible, horrible situation. And what was their crime? Casting out a python spirit from a slave girl and making it so the owners couldn't make money. Which is not what they accused Paul of doing. They didn't bring up what he actually did. They said he gave us customs that come from the Jews and we don't like them. And, uh, and so on and so forth, proclaiming things that aren't suitable for us Roman citizens because we're better than that. It's kind of annoying when people talk like that. You notice in our recent political stuff here in America, how many people look down their noses at us and say, well, we're better than that? What's their idea better than? Lawlessness, chaos, you know, wickedness. Uh, there's something wrong with these Christians. It's the way it's been since Paul's day. Okay, Brian. I don't want to jump on maybe your uh, little preview coming up here, but I find it ironic that when they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely, kind of like when they rolled the rock in front of Jesus's tomb. Make sure he doesn't get out. (laughs) Good reading. You know, it never seems to work, does it? No, it doesn't. Um, Yeah, now this, uh, I have on the slide... Luke's words do not denote a mob riot. This was a legal proceeding. Okay? The mob didn't start throwing stones at them. It was the officials that beat them because it was their something they did. Let me show you that slide and we'll go back here. If you look at this, here's a, a, the tore the robes off of them and commanded them to beat them with rods. There's, there's some red there. These are uh, senators. Note the two senators on the right who both carry a bundle of rods over their left shoulder for inflicting punishment. So here's an old uh, inscription to show this is the kind of thing they did. So they are thrown down into the dungeon. Let me quote Dr. Schnabel again. The verb translated joined in attacking him does not denote a mob, right, but the spontaneous participations of the citizens of Philippi in the legal proceedings. So they joined in this uh, attack against Paul and bringing complaints before the authority in legal terms and in an orderly fashion. Back to quoting Schnabel, had their intervention resembled a riot, they would have bludgeoned the two visitors and not taken them to the magistrates in the Agora. Thus, the comment describes the fact that the other, 
that the citizens of Philippi voice their support for the charges of the accusers, not an illegal action of the mob. So that's why we have legal proceedings. So they were beaten with rods, which would be the Roman custom, not flogging, which had happened earlier when the Jews inflicted um, punishment. Now, these blows were serious, and these guys were in bad shape after this happened. So they're put down into the prison. Let me quote some more about this to show the historical accuracy. The severe beating was followed by further punishment. Paul and Silas were thrown down into prison. Fulake, the magistrates employed incarceration as a police measure for the short-term penalty of misbehaving individuals in the context of their um, coercio, which is the authority of Roman magistrates, to intervene when they judged the public order had been violated by citizens and non-citizens restricting their rights and exercising sovereign power. Since Luke does not suggest the magistrate wanted to put Paul and Silas on trial at a later date, the imprisonment was not pre-trial. So this was just their punishment for causing problems. Don't do that. Whack, whack, whack. That'll teach you. And so they're beaten and they're located down in the Agora in the prison. So I showed you there's the rods. Now here's some more. The forum pointed out there. And then there's a box. I don't know if you can see it. A possible prison beneath the atrium would be back up there behind that tall tower. So it's another indication of the historicity of this. By the way, for those of you who are interested, this is my best commentary on Acts. I got it rather recently. It came out in a new series. This same series has the one I one of the ones I use for Ephesians. The guy's name is uh, uh, Eckhart Schnabel. For some reason, people are like, Commentaries have very unique names. Eckhart Schnabel. Not like Bob. No, Bob is. <laughs> so I don't write commentaries, I just read them. All right. Now let's see what happens. Okay, they're down in the prison. Guarded by, by the way, the prison guard was likely a slave. He wouldn't have had much status, but he had a job. He was a slave. And it was his job to, make, job to make sure they can get out. And they were pretty well secured. They shouldn't have been able to get out. They're down in a prison and fastened and in stocks. <laughs> Quoting Acts 16, 25 through 26 from the ESV. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. What do you do? when you get mistreated, beaten, bloodied, and thrown into prison. Well, you sing to God, right? <laughs> maybe we wouldn't have thought about that, but that's what they did. And maybe that'll help us think about it. What, what happens when we're mistreated? We sing to God. 
Why? Because we have the joy of the Holy Spirit. Why? Not because everything is great and wonderful in our lives, but because we are filled with the Spirit, we have forgiveness of sins, and God is with us, and if God is with us, then who can be against us? And so let's praise God no matter what happens. All right. So they're praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I can imagine they would. What kind of prisoners are these? All right. They're listening to them. Notice, suddenly, there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Everyone's. They're loose. Now, I talked about earlier about what it means, what a narrative is. Luke is telling us that this is a miracle. It's not just happenstance, it's a miracle that it happened this way. God intervened so that they'd be loose. Now the word in the Greek for singing hymns is sumneo. We can see our word hymn lies there. And which would be songs to God which extolled his virtues and mighty deeds. Songs to God which extolled his virtues and mighty deeds. Who God is, what his character is, his holiness, his mercy, his love, and his mighty deeds, who sets the prisoner free. Now this, he, these hymns would have its root in the Old Testament. Paul was uh, Jewish, well-trained in Tanakh. The word for a hymn here in the Greek translation of the Old Testament was sometimes used for psalms, and they could very well have been sung by Paul and Silas. Now let's turn to some examples. This will maybe give us an idea what we can do on a really bad day. Psalm 9, 9 and 10. I want us to focus on extolling his virtues and mighty deeds. Psalm 9, 9 and 10. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. O Lord, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Psalm 9, 9 and 10. Look at that. You might want to mark that one down. You might need it. You might need Psalm 9, 9 and 10. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. Remember the song of Moses? What was that about? Horse and rider he threw into the sea. It's reminding him of a mighty deed of God. God declares and demonstrates his virtues by his mighty deeds that he takes when he takes action in the deliverance of his own people. He shows how great and glorious he is, and that he keeps his promises. 
and that he's a protector of those who are oppressed. A stronghold for the oppressed. Stronghold in time of trouble. Those who know your name. By the way, the name, okay, the name of the Lord was more than just a personal designator so you know one from a different one. It's a description of character qualities. Who God is. The creator. The sovereign one. The holy one. The mighty one. The very character qualities of God are revealed in various names that are given for God in the Bible. As I've been preaching through Ephesians, we began in Ephesians 1 with this whole section. <coughs> the, excuse me. <coughs> this whole section that's called eulogetos in the Greek, the Hebrew word for it is barakah which means to bless God or blessing. And in the Hebrew Bible, the, the people of God, the people of faith, blessed God in this way. The greater blesses the lesser. So we can't add anything to God's character. So barakah means to extol God's status as the creator, as the redeemer, as the savior, as the one who has acted in history to save a people, the one who's demonstrated his virtues. So we're declaring the deeds and virtues of the God we serve in this kind of praise. And I love that Ephesians begins with a barakah. Blessed be God, who has not forgotten his servant. There's so many of these in the Psalms. Blessed be God, who has heard me in a time of trouble and answered my prayer. Blessed be God, who has done mighty deeds and kept his promises to David and the patriarchs. In fact, we can go back to the beginning of Luke. Luke acts a two-volume work. And we see people inspired by the Spirit declaring the mighty deeds of God. Zacharias. The Holy Spirit comes on people and Luke acts and what comes out of their mouth are the mighty deeds of God. In Luke 1, in Acts 2, we hear them declaring the mighty deeds of God in our own tongue. This is significant of tongues in, in Luke. Let's look at another one. Jot this down. Psalm 27, 5 and 6. Psalm 27, 5 and 6. Can you think about, here's Paul and Silas beaten for having done nothing wrong. Beaten because of the bad motives of the slave owner who didn't even reveal why he wanted them beaten by saying he's taking away our prophets by casting a demon out. That way they didn't get false pretenses. And so they're down there having been beaten, bloodied in stocks, in a dungeon, chained up, and they're singing psalms because they knew them. 
It's part of their background. Psalm 27, 5 and 6. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. Psalm 27, 6. Now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Wow, can you imagine being a prisoner in there and hearing these guys sing that? Wow. How can they do that? Because they had the Holy Spirit. The joy of the Holy Spirit doesn't come and go with our circumstances. Because the Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Trinity. He indwells believers. And joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And what God has done, forgave our sins, saved us from darkness, and set us on the rock, is always true every day, no matter what's happening. And yea, I would say, speaking biblically, yea. Um, King James is never far from us, is it? Um, those worst times are probably the best time to do that. Wouldn't that make sense? I think uh, Psalm 37, the whole thing, security for those who trust in the Lord and insecurity for uh, disbelievers yeah. is pertinent, the whole, the whole psalm. It's through the, okay, Psalm 37. There are so many of these. I'm just giving you examples that would so clearly apply to the situation of Paul and Silas. You know, for decades, actually decades, on Wednesday nights when I was assistant pastor in a church down 24th and Dicklett that was called Twin City Fellowship. Um, it wasn't the best neighborhood. We had a lot of problems, but Wednesday nights, I just uh, didn't know what else to do. So every Wednesday night, I would uh, go down there and we'd open up, we'd go through the Psalms. Started Psalm 1 just for years and years and years. Go through the Psalms, study them, and have time of prayer. And uh, there would be maybe five or six people that would come. And uh, thank God for them, usually older people. And I, back then I was in my 30s and 40s, so I was young. So your, uh, your dad, Bill, was always there. And uh, he was there till he died. He'd come to the, to the meeting. Harold Snitz is another old guy. Came. Some people would pick him up, bring him down there. We would go through the songs. We'd study these things. Harold, very, in his 90s, he had never owned a car in his life. World War II veteran who had gone into the war when he was old, too old to go. He had to fake his, na- his age to get in because he wanted to go to war when he was too old. Harold Snitzes. I was down there. I'll never forget this. We're studying the Psalms. Harold was there. So weak. So frail. He couldn't hardly get his head off the table. And we're going through the Psalms. Harold Snitzes. 
finally got his head up and he said, I failed God in many ways, but it's all under the blood. Boom. Last thing I ever heard, he died within the next week. And it was my honor to do his funeral. But I thought, I know for a fact, Carol's in a lot better state physically, spiritually than I usually am. (laughs) Just judging from what I knew about him. He's one of the most wonderful Christian guys I ever met. The way he lived his life and his faithfulness and his simplicity, Harold and Hazel. Um, and if he would say, I feel God in many ways, well, I guess I, can, I know that's true for me too. And maybe when I'm in my 90s and I'm ready to die, it's not a bad testimony. It's all under the blood. And Harold went to be with Jesus. So we're going through the Psalms. They're fitting for everything. Even being so old, you can hardly move anymore. I don't know what Psalm we were on then, but we were on one of them. Psalm 68, 19 and 20. Blessed be the Lord, who daily bears our burden. The Lord who is our salvation. God is to us a God of deliverances. And the Lord, and to the Lord belongs escape from death. Psalm 68, 19 and 20. Psalm 143, 9. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. I take refuge in you. So they're praying and singing. The prisoners listening. An earthquake happens. And they're all, they're all loosed from their bonds. All of them. The pagans thought earthquakes quakes were actions of a god. So they would have thought, well, that's what it is. Let me explain the difference between pagans and believers who have their faith grounded in the scriptures. The Judeo-Christian worldview. The pagans believe in deities, but they have to guess what's going on because they have no specific revelation. So they believed when an earthquake happened the gods were angry about something. And there's data that's preserved in history about what they thought. And so they go offer sacrifices to this god or goddess or that god or goddess to try to appease them because of they were angry. But they were never quite sure about what. If they're drought they're drought the gods are angry. The earthquake, the gods are angry. I don't know who they are, but they're out there somewhere. Remember when Paul goes to Athens, Corinth, and we're in the Corinthian Peninsula? They had they had an altar to an unknown god because they thought one might be angry that we don't know their name. They had a list of all of them. We don't, in case we missed one. The difference here is that Paul and Silas know the true God who acts in history. Let me just quote here. The Jews who know the Psalms of David have ample material from which they can draw in times of acute physical suffering. And the example of the imprisoned Joseph, remember Joseph, falsely imprisoned? 
of Daniel's three friends, book of Daniel, the martyrs of the Maccabean period, and of course the example of Jesus are more relevant for the two missionaries in their motivation for engaging in prayer and singing. They knew from their own scriptures that God delivers people from prison. He did with Joseph. They sang a hymn at the Last Supper and they went out to the Mount of Olives. Acts sixteen twenty-seven through 30. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul (laughs) cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed him, which would have been torches, trembling with fear, He fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What a great question. Now let's fill in this detail a little bit. Why would he think he needed to kill himself? Right. Because he knew that the Romans who had told him to keep them secure would literally torture, torture him, maybe by crucifixion, in a slow, painful, miserable death. And he wanted to die quickly rather than go through the Roman torture he knew he would face. That's how serious it was. But um, the apostle Paul and, his, and Silas intervened. I have a statement here I put in my notes. Luke focused on the response of the slave owner who was, excuse me, of the slave owner of the slave girl who was delivered and now focuses on the response of the jailer. He did not focus on the slave girl and now he does not focus on the other prisoners. His technique, Luke's, is to highlight certain individuals' response and thus make important points. We need not speculate about what happened to people who fade from the picture of of Luke's narrative. We'll learn from the ones he does tell us about. Eventually, it covers all different kinds of people. We learn what we need to from those responses which are described. Now, Luke consistently has done that from Luke 1.1 and will do so to the end of Acts. The people he chooses in Luke 1 are interesting. Rather than telling us, well, this one did this, this one did this, this one did that, he focuses like Zacharias. We have all kinds of details about the father of John the Baptist. Now, you and I might think, I don't care that much about the father of John the Baptist. Tell me more about, and then we think of somebody we'd be interested in. But Luke is doing this under the inspiration of the Spirit, and he's a very talented writer. What we learn from Zacharias becomes thematic for all of Luke Acts. 
He focuses on somebody, and what happens with them tells us how God deals with people and tells us what's important and tells us things about how we should be. And Zacharias was one. The Holy Spirit came upon him, and he spoke out about the mighty deeds of God. So will Mary, for that that matter, or Elizabeth, and other people like that individuals. And eventually, the people that Luke focuses on include Gentiles, uh, sinners, lepers, people nobody thinks important. And we learn by, we're learning so much. So rather than, well, what happened to the slave girl? No, this is what we need to focus on because what we know. We don't know. We'll find out in heaven what happened to the slave girl. Now, again, he's using action verbs. Called for lights, rushed in, trembling, fell down. So the powerful story, historically accurate, is telling us what happened. Sirs, what must I do? Sirs here is curios, lords. But in his use, it's a, it's a address of respect. And saved is sozo. Sozo means to be rescued from serious peril. Now, he may not have totally understood the issues of the gospel and forgiveness of sins. What little he knew, he knew from hearing them sing. All right? But he knew he needed to be saved from serious peril because he was ready to kill himself. Whatever he meant, he got an answer, and I'll just give you a little preview. Next time we'll deal with this. Verse 31 to 34, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And eventually it becomes a gospel encounter. So um, this terror may have been religious terror, not just fear of the Romans. Because remember what I said, that even in their world, earthquakes were considered actions of the gods, and they usually signified something. And so the fact that all the chains came out, all the prisoners were free to go run away, that's what they chose to do, but they weren't going to do that. He would have just thought, all right, the gods have found me out, and now I'm a goner. Who knows what he was thinking, but he knew he was in trouble. I can't help but go back to the resurrection. So here we have the jailer who, after they're freed, he's ready to kill himself. But then we got the uh, we got the guards who they must have had those thoughts going through their head. But the 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 political lie that had to come up to uh, give reason for Christ to not be in the tomb. It's amazing. Good reading. Good reading. yeah, it's interesting. Different responses of people tell us things about them and things about the gospel. Now, this guy found out what it means to be saved. Now, if we look, go to Matthew, the guards took money to lie. Money is always a motive that many are motivated by. You know, nobody more than those guards knew what happened. Let me, let me, that's a good point you make. Let me, as we close here, let me highlight that a little bit. 
A lot of people think that if I was smart enough and articulate enough, I could convince anybody to be a Christian. If I just knew more stuff, if I could just lay out my arguments more clearly, and I'm in favor of doing that the best that we can, then they become a Christian. But what that isn't reminding us of is the spiritual blindness that keeps people from Christ. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So the guards at the tomb knew more than anybody that Christ was raised. But they would rather have money and save their skins than to confess the truth. Well, they could have been. They could have been, but they took money to lie about it. And we'll keep everybody out of trouble. Go back and read the Matthew account. We'll pay you. Everybody will be okay. We're going to just cover our own skins. This jailer knew he'd be tortured and put to death. That's why he's going to kill himself. You can't let your prisoners go. Think about this. The women who came to the tomb, they didn't know what was going on. They thought they saw an angel. They're not sure. They eventually see Christ. The jailer or the guards knew better than they, but they didn't care. They'd rather take money. What keeps people from the gospel isn't that the gospel is a reasonable, rational. What keeps people from it is hardness of heart. And what delivers them is God turning on the light. The means is through the gospel. We preach the gospel, God turns on the light. Is that right? So, what do we learn? The Bible is historically true. God intervenes in history that when we have our worst possible time we still have the joy of the Lord and we can still sing hymns of praise. I think that's an important lesson. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done for us. Thank you for your goodness. Pray for Eric that you be with him as he preaches to us. And Lord, I pray that you keep everyone You're safe, healthy, and continuing to praise you. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.